0: Well, welcome back to the MEN podcast. Uh, Joe Roter here uh, with Red's Fly Shop, sitting here uh, with my kind of co-owner, manager, host, guide, extraordinaire, Steve Joyce. Yeah, and it's been a while since we've been able to sit on the riverbank and do one of these podcasts, Joe. Oh my gosh, so many fish, so little time. Trying to go catch trout, take people fishing, race kids. It's funny that we find the time to do it this week. Your wedding anniversary was last week. Mine is tomorrow. We both got married right around Thanksgiving, one year apart. Yeah, wedding anniversary, um, (laughs) one of the scariest days of the year for a husband, I'd say. Second only to the dreaded Valentine's Day. (laughs) Yeah, Valentine's Day I've not done very well on. I tried taking Natalie ice fishing and out to lunch one time valentine's day thankfully we were just dating then if we would have been married then i would have been in big trouble oh god i bought her a pair of boots with her actual gift (laughs) a pair of winter snow boots (laughs) (laughs) it didn't go over very well oh gosh that's funny i uh, man, i we could make a whole podcast about bad guys. that'll be a good one for the future yeah so we're sitting out here uh it's a Beautiful day just after Thanksgiving. Man, it, this is spectacular weather right now. In the- as crummy as this season started out in early November this winter, as crummy as it could have been, I mean, here we are, blue sky, not a cloud in the sky. The river is dropping and clearing it. We got a huge rain push last week that, that caused it to go up to 5,000 CFS again. Now it's dropping and clearing. This thing is actually fishing right now. Yeah, we had, we had good fishing yesterday. Uh, in the short amount of time we're out, we'll kind of get into that on. So on today's podcast, uh, we're going to recap a really fun day that we had yesterday, and it was kind of like the guide Olympics for Reds. Uh, we didn't really name it or plan it, and it was a heck of a lot of fun, though. Uh, we got a, we wanted to get together as kind of a, just an end of season rally to get our guide team together. We got such a wonderful group of guys that work here, and. What we did is, well, Steve designed the format, so I'll let him kind of explain how the whole day went. Well, yeah, I mean, a lot of our guides are getting ready to kind of pack it up and and go into hibernation for the winter after the click season winds down and, and typically we get some cold weather on the Yakima. And we wanted to do something to bring them together and talk about a few, you know, business things, new programs for next year. And we've always found that the best way to do that is to plan something fun. So we needed to do that. And what we came up with yesterday is the guide showed up here at noon and we went and shot sporting clays. And on the sporting clay shoot, you keep score. We drew teams so that it was a two-member team and they had to partner with one of the other staff to do that, we just drew names out of the hat the second event from there is we had 60 minutes, start to finish, to go catch fish. And they could float, they could wade, they could do whatever they wanted, but they had 60 minutes from start to finish from the time the gun sounded to be back in the parking lot standing here. And uh, which, that was a lot of fun. We'll get into the details of how that went and different strategies that came in on that. The third scoring event that we did then after the fishing was the guides brought all of their food and had to cook a guide lunch, something that they would normally prepare right at Riverside, and we had some of our other staff actually judge that, and I'll tell you that might have been one of the most competitive parts <laughs> of the whole competition. These guys really got into that. Oh, it was top. It was Top Chef. If uh, if anybody wants to see any of the fun videos, I posted some videos. Uh, they would have gone up November 28th on our Reds Fly Shop Facebook page. Make sure you check that out and like us. But, yeah, you can see the action. I mean, there was a, there was barbecues going. It was a one giant tailgate party with very fine food prepared by it those fellows. It was really good, yep. A lot of fun. It was really good. And some of those entrees actually came out. I mean, it, it was a very professional deal. They went all in on it. Yeah, you, uh, you know, see, so when we brought all the food up to the, the restaurant bar, the restaurant and the vacuity bar was closed, uh, yesterday when we did this. But when we brought all that food up there, I mean, it looked spectacular. You wouldn't have known a bunch of, bunch of rednecks and waiters drinking Coors Light were preparing that food downstairs because <laughs> it did. It looked like it was the presentation was awesome. It was that's, high, it was highbrow. That's for certain. And then the final event that we did to, to top it off is casting. which we do that often out here it's important that all of our guides stay sharp on that the one twist that joe pulled out for that yesterday is he pulled out the echo gecko rod to cast with the kids rod (laughs) that was good fun um yeah we had a really fun day like i said check out the little uh videos on the facebook page to get a good laugh and and just kind of see what our staff's all about i mean we have so much fun doing this job uh it was uh it was really great to get all the guys out but we do, and it was a good turnout. I mean, a lot of guys, even some of our guys who live on the west side in Seattle, you know, a couple hours away, several of them made it over. And, I mean, there were only a handful of our staff that didn't make it, and they, you know, tried to do everything they could to make it. So it was really popular. I think that in the future we're going to have some some additional client opportunities with a format similar to that. Yeah, it was it was a, like the guide triathlon, you know, we went and shot shot shotguns on the clays course and came back, fished for an hour, start to finish, we'll get into the details of that. A, a lot of the uh, guides <laughs> on the clays course, you know, I mean, guides by nature, if you're going to be a good fishing guide, you're going to be a competitive individual to start with. There's no two ways about it. When you're out fishing with clients, it's not that you're keeping score, but you're of, of who's in your boat you're not putting a lot of pressure on clients to catch fish because you want to put a lot of fish in the boat but you definitely you're looking out the corner of your eye at the other guides who are around you and you don't like it no matter if you have two two clients in your boat who are brand-new beginners and never held the fly rod before you just don't like it when you see another guide catch a fish around you and and you might see some of these guides start pulling the oars a little bit deeper and a little bit harder when that happens. <laughs> oh for sure, yeah. No matter how long you guide it you're still competitive. You get to go I mean the river's like your course, right? Your golf course, your racetrack or whatever, you get to go play that course every day. And uh yeah, it was it was fun. It was a really fun, fun competition. So um, the Sporting Clays course here, we have seven stations up there. We shot a twenty five shot round. And there were a number of guides that put in, you know, pretty good scores on it. I mean, the leader, Cam, shot 22 out of 25. I think so, yeah. Yep, and he uh, dropped a couple targets. There were a couple other guys probably that were over 20. Yeah, you were right behind him. Yeah, and I dropped a couple targets on it. I missed one duck, which the duck station in that sporting place course should be the easiest target on it, and it's just like missing a short putt in golf you can't get it back but your score is forever forever (laughs) ruined from it and and it it, if you aren't mentally prepared for it you can't let it ruin the rest of your game because the doors could come off at that point and and that's what could happen really easily with that But those guides really got into the the sporting clays part of it. I mean, the nice thing about sporting clays, those of you who don't know what sporting clays is, it's golf with a shotgun. And the nice thing about sporting clays, I mean, there were 15 of us in there yesterday. And we were done start to finish in about an hour and 15 minutes. All of us had shot a 25-shot round in an hour and 15 minutes probably. Uh, it's so much fun. Every time you go do that, you just your only regrets not taking more shells and and not doing it enough that you actually can improve with it, start yeah. getting better. And I was really shocked at uh, how well some of the guides that don't shoot did. They, I mean, everybody's breaking targets. I mean, they're so competitive. I mean, they're in hyper concentration mode, right? Uh, see, even some of the guys who don't shoot did quite well, but our. Uh, you know two top hunting guides cam you know cam guides probably the most forest upland and uh Curtis was right behind him and you, at like 19 and you shot like 20 yeah is that right 20. so yeah and so our our three top scores were hunting guides um which I thought was quite fitting uh which is good yeah that was a ton of fun and then uh and then we came back down and uh went into the fishing so we'll talk about fishing next so then the fishing part of it we showed up back in the parking lot everyone got wadered up and the rules on the fishing were that we started the timer at 60 minutes, right standing in the parking lot. You could go wherever you wanted to go fish, which all of these guides obviously are pretty familiar with this river. It was actually kind of neat because this river did go up to 5,000 a few days ago. So it's dropping and clearing right now, but it's not at a point that this time of year you would predict it to be at. So a lot of the low water winter lies were not accessible for guys yesterday, yeah, and which was kind of nice because it uh, made some of these guys think outside of the box a little bit. So sixty minutes is not a lot of time though. I mean it, uh, you know, a lot of guys were planning on floating originally, but then as soon as they got the rules format and and kind of considered what was at stake, they didn't decide to go put a boat in the water because with the rules were that you didn't get your boat in the water and get to go shuttle before the competition started. If you were gonna go do a shuttle and put your boat in water, that was part of your 60 minutes. And the boat had to be at the end of 60 minutes back on the trailer sitting in the parking lot here. Yeah, I screwed that up bad. So, yeah, there were two guys that uh, did not register scores in the fishing part of it because they didn't make the deadline. Only two guys didn't make the, the check-in Yeah, that was, that was my book. Yeah, well, the weigh-in part of it yeah i think we got hustled by curtis and ricky which ricky was one of my partners and what we did was uh we had teams so i was ricky's partner and and steve is patrick's partner for instance we all had partners but you can't go fish with your partner because then right. we, we would be subject to scrutiny by the competitors so we actually That's had to right. fish with one of the competing teams so i fished with red's guide shan sedgwick and i was his official he was my official and then who'd you fish with I fished with James so you fish with James so we had to measure each other's fish so if uh, Shan caught a fish I measured it if I caught a fish Shan measured it and the format was that you could only score two trout so if you caught an 18 inch fish and a 14 inch fish then your score was a total combined 32 even if you would have caught four trout you would only score the top two yeah so it it made you think a little bit about whether you wanted to, you know, just go big flies and big streamers, or if you wanted to nymph, or you know, rethink your strategy. But, you know, a total of 40 minutes of fishing is not a lot of fishing. You know, not a the, lot. By the time you get to the water and 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 maybe a fly change or two, I mean you're cut pretty good. But I floated from uh, it was Shan's idea. Okay, I supported it and I blew this. But we floated from the upper end of the Reds property to the lower end, which is about a quarter mile. And I did pretty good on the fishing end of things. I mean, I, I would have registered two 12 inch trout, which is a twenty-four, which would have been pretty strong. I think only pretty strong Curtis would Curtis did better than that, but uh, I think the twenty-four would have been pretty strong. But we we were floating down and and I was looking at the other boat and I didn't you know, I was waiting and uh, I was out of the boat and Shan was in the boat. We had to stay close, but he dropped me off on the shore. I mean this was like this was a pretty high speed derby, you know, like we're we're pushing it. And so he's got me on the shore, he's out of the boat anchored, he's fishing, but we can see each other for some officiating uh officiating reasons. And I I was gonna wait until I saw Ricky and Curtis row across the river to put their boat on the trailer. And I was thinking, Oh, they'll they're really close to the launch so they'll be pretty conservative and they'll just when they row over we'll row over yeah right and when i saw them start rowing over they were rowing like maniacs and then i go oh no shan i was like come pick me up (laughs) by the time he picked me up and we rode over i had three minutes to sprint to the top end of the property fetch the truck get it back down get the boat on the trailer and didn't make it didn't make it i'm not that uh, bad and our strategy was so we drove james and i went we decided we were gonna go wade fish. And for this competition, I mean, obviously the, the best strategy would be to go and try and catch two big trout. That's the best strategy. So we went down river to a place where I know big fish live. We catch a lot of big fish in that water. And on my first, second cast, I hooked and landed a nice 18 inch trout. And I thought, all right, this is good program. James was just down below me about five minutes later. James caught a nice 14 inch fish and so we were feeling pretty good about ourselves but man i'm telling you it we kept working hard and we had a couple other strikes that we missed we were nymphing and at the end of it i mean it's amazing how fast 60 minutes goes oh And we we reeled up and as we were coming down the hill to drive into the parking lot it uh we saw the other cars were coming in hot and (laughs) and the the circus show at the boat ramp was going on and which we saw Joe and Shan's boat up river still they were still up river coming down and we said there's no way they're making it (laughs) and we didn't we were, we were surprised Ricky even actually got his boat out in time, frankly. Yeah, there was a lot of jockeying for position there. I mean, Ricky, had, he was my partner, and he'd blocked the boat ramp to begin with, which you weren't allowed to launch your boat before the 60 minutes, but nobody said you couldn't park on the boat ramp. It, that was big time savings for him. Yeah, big deal. And uh, anyway, yeah, I totally DQ'd us, and it didn't matter anyways because Ricky went down there and rode Curtis into, like, five big fish so he was able to high grade and, and place like a 17 and a 16 inch trout which uh, on the app yeah, trout score yeah yeah that's a great trout score i mean those are those are fabulous and those are taped fish too by the way they're not like hey i got an 18 inch yep, or... <laughs> in the water and taped was the rules and they taped them in the nets. it was it was pretty cool cool format frankly yeah and uh but tell me about your your strategy so you you went nymph fishing, you drove the highway to a very specific spot. Yep. Um, I think yesterday was pretty cool because the Yakima River Canyon where we're at, it's not generally regarded as a, uh, you know, it's a. I I think it's a great wade fishing stream, uh, but it's generally not a wade fisherman's or known as a wade fisherman's destinations. So we have great boat access and we guide out of boats. but. I think a lot of the guys learned how good the wade fishing can be yesterday on the river. Oh, yeah. I was amazed. When we went down there, James actually had never wade fished that spot that we went to before, Uh which we call that spot. We refer to it as the PhD hole, and and the reason we do that is because we, we joke that a lot of those trout actually have their doctorate. And by the end of the season, there's a lot of guys that go down and wade fish there when there's a hatch coming off and they throw small dry flies right on that foam seam there. And we joke that by the end of the season, those trout could probably tell you who tied most of those flies (laughs) that you're fishing with. So that's not not an easy spot to, to go and catch fish, but definitely a lot of big fish live there. And I mean, this time of year, after the river had gone up like that, we figured that was probably a pretty good spot to go. But the ironic thing about it, we had our waders on, but neither one of us actually stepped foot in the water there. We were walking the bank, fishing from dry ground. Gotcha, dry wading. Yep. Yeah. Good, good technique. Individual rock pile and, you know, river dropping and clearing like this. I mean, you know, Pat Stone and San Juan Worm are what most guys, I was looking, paying attention to what guys were tying on in the parking lot before they were going out. There was a lot of dirt snakes and... and Pat stones being yeah, which, tied on. Which for us in the fall we generally don't fish San Juan worms and and stuff like that very often we just don't get much for fall rain it usually falls in the form of snow in the mountains and the river stays really low and clear but we had a Pineapple Express blow in last week the yep. river swelled up for us. Um, a lot of bank erosion happened and you know those fish saw a push of worms. Yeah and you know for those that don't frequent the river or just want to know more about the river, we're talking about the Yakima River Canyon. We like it at around 1,500 cubic feet per second in flow uh, at the Umtanum location. This may be nothing to a lot of you folks listening, but when the river the river quadrupled in size uh, there about 10 days ago, and it went up really fast with the rain, and then the cold nights made it recover and drop really fast. And when that river drops like that and clears, uh, that's a great time to it's a very strategic move is just to fish worms. That bank erosion brings them in and trout like worms. Um so so you went San Juan worm and and, and San stone Juan plucking. worm Pat Stone, yep.
1: Yeah, you went yep. James kind of,
0: James and I both did. Yeah, just trusty, reliable patterns, didn't try to get fancy or do anything too too crazy. Nope, but it's even funny at that point how absorbed you get in the fishing because both James and I had set our timers at 60 minutes and fortunately I'd set an alarm at 10 minutes to go off. And I mean, I was thinking in my mind we were going to go hit one more spot. You know, we were going to hit this spot for for half hour, 20 minutes, and then hit another spot on our way back to the shot for a few minutes. And next thing you know, my alarm... Was going off with 10 minutes left that we need to reel up and get on the road back to the shop. Yeah, I should have done that. Uh, (laughs) But then a lot of the other guys, so we had guys throwing streamers yesterday. Brian threw streamers yesterday. I think that uh, Noe threw streamers yesterday. And, you know, those guys fishing streamers, they all caught fish. And Brian caught, you know, a nice 17, 18 inch fish himself fishing a streamer too up at the rock slides. Uh huh. Gotcha. So. Yeah, so, I mean, yeah, so you were talking about dry waiting. What advice, you know, let's just say somebody's, you know, on a river, we're going to talk about strategies for fishing the fringe months, which Thanksgiving for us, that's a fringe month, you know, from November 15th to December 15th, we're not quite in the dead of winter yet. Um, what advice can you give people uh, fishing trout rivers during that time of year? On, well, I think, foot? I think one thing that's a really important is you need to pay attention to current speed because these fish like those riffles that highly oxygenated faster moving water in the summer months when it's warm out that's where most of the oxygen is at and especially the big fish need that oxygen in those warm months by the time we get into the winter season and water temps cool down like they are right now they're backing down from the tops of those riffles and runs into the tail outs or the you know deeper part deeper slower part of the middle So that's the first thing, is you need to focus on the slower, deeper water in the winter months. And don't move all the way up to the rock pile at the top of the run. Move down to the bottom of the riffle, almost to where that seam that 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 rock is making is disappearing in the current, where it's flattening out and it's getting smooth. Yeah. Not fishing. Pay attention to the texture. You want the smooth, slow, smooth water is what you want, not fast riffling. Yeah, and... and, Yeah, I, I agree with that. You know, you're going to look where there's minim, probably minimal chop. If you're looking at something from a distance or you're maybe on the road, um, a lot of rivers people are fishing. They're either going to hike a high bank or maybe even drive the road a little bit and identify where they're going to fish from the comfort of their warm vehicle. Exactly. Uh, nice thing about road fishing, and there is a ton of it in the Yakima Canyon here. I mean, that's the thing is every single rock pile that you caught a fish on in the summer months, those fish are probably still there. They're just moved down a little bit further into the slower part of that run. And if you're fishing by yourself, I mean, we went to that one rock pile yesterday because there was enough room for both of us spread out there. But there's a half dozen other smaller rock piles that I know we could have gone and, and caught fish in. Yeah, so slick water no chop and then the other thing that that I notice when i'm especially when I'm fishing a dew river um, is uh, just looking at it from a topographic standpoint you know we're looking at a stretch of water literally right now and uh, you can see upstream here the river's actually on a, a visible hill or a grade or slope and then so you know from where I'm looking straight out it begins to transition into something that's topographically flat where the river is running just you know flat and level Water's still moving downhill obviously but you can see that transition and that's a really easy way from a distance to identify flat pools or holding water especially in the low light months of you know november december january february you don't have direct sunlight on the water and rivers can be really hard to read so you need to use the you know the information given on the surface currents whether it's choppy or slick and uh, look at it from a topographic standpoint and look for the flat spots, don't fish the hills. Right, yep, that's right. So lots of guys nymphed yesterday, a few guys through streamers, and what technique did you and Shan utilize from the boat on the other side? Well, we, uh, you know, we're both decided to nymph because we were gonna, you know, with streamer fishing, I'm typically gonna try to cover more water. Um, I'm gonna show the streamer to the fish once or twice and move on. Uh, When rivers are a little bit higher, and this river isn't running quite bank full, but it's definitely above the mean flow, you know, or the average flow. When rivers are running above the average flow, streamers can be really effective, or on a big river like this from the boat, where you can cover a lot of water and you can throw that streamer in towards the bank, but I elected against streamers myself, simply because a lot of the fish are hiding along the shore right now and uh, to get out of the faster currents the water's probably what 41 degrees Steve? 40 degrees yeah, or so? It, it, yeah, 40 degrees. They're looking for walking speed currents um, right around that 40 degree mark you really need to be careful that you're not fishing in too fast water so for us right now a lot of those fish are going to be in a little closer to the shore I'm going to end up casting over those fish numerous or multiple times so uh, I, myself, I'm starting to take up European-style nymphing. Um, I've never done much of it before. I've hacked away at it and totally failed. I still kind of suck at it. I'm not going to lie. But uh, I I was successful yesterday. I've been out three or four times recently for real short sessions, and I've caught fish each time. But in the competitive angling uh, world, I mean, every single person is European. If they're nymphing, they're European-style nymphing. Uh, and unanimously uh, is recognized as the most productive technique when it comes to pure catching fish. I like it because I'm, I'm intrigued by it because it's new. Um, and I want to be able to catch fish with new techniques because I think it's going to help my other fishing. So I went Euro style nymphing. Uh, Shan went with his old reliable uh, thingamabob or the pats and probably, I'm guessing, a Jaeger's tungsten beaded hairs here, number 16. I would guess that <laughs> that's kind of Shan's Zimbo Yeah, it's, he is. Pretty much, he doesn't live life real risky when it comes to fly solo. At least he wasn't wearing shorts yesterday. He did have waders on yesterday. Yeah, boofa. Even waders. though he even though he was in the boat, he had waders on yesterday. <laughs> yeah, he he had the boofa waders. I did too. I it was which I was glad of. It was pretty cold, but uh, yeah. So we we went nymph fishing too. Uh, I landed three fish standing at our upper boat ramp yesterday before that boat even hit the water. I landed three fish and. The first 10 minutes, and uh, which is pretty cool because that's how the Euro style thing's supposed to work. You're supposed to be able to isolate, you know, a patch of water where you know there to be fish, um, and all your fishing is fairly close range. And you're you should be able to pick that water type over, or that water that spot over in great detail without spooking the fish because you don't have you know typically large flies and large indicators to spook the fish generally spoken when you hook them uh but i caught three fish right there before the boat hit the water shan didn't catch anything and uh and i should have went down and reported back here and walked back down and I, had a beer i should have let shan uh, go solo it had a beer while i waited for everybody else to come in because i, I would have placed a little better but well a lot better <laughs> but then we went across the river and i ended up catching a couple more and uh shan's so funny because he typically he's not really into the new exploratory type strategies he is very uh he's very conservative and i even though i was 5-1 i still don't think he was convinced that he needed to look into this maybe if the ratio had been more like 40 or 50 to 1 <laughs> he might have started to open his eyes but i like that euro style fishing i'm just steve it's been forever since i watched an entire instructional dvd probably since the real modern spay casting dvd came out like 10 or 15 years ago yep yep i watched that three disc set but i watched uh modern nymphing uh with lance egan and and Devin olson uh about two weeks ago and i gotta tell you i soaked up every bit of it i was like man this is really intriguing you know the your flies do different stuff under the surface than you think they're doing, and they have some a lot of underwater video on that DVD that's really explanatory about you know different strategies I really hadn't even thought about before, and and an understanding of how it flies work in current that's pretty enlightening. I, I got to say I'm excited to to try this out. I guide out of a boat a lot. And European-style nymphing is not typically done out of the boat, so I think that's been preventative for myself learning it. But from a personal angling standpoint, I'm pretty stoked to be trying something new and having having some success. I was told by Russell Miller, formerly uh, from Sage Fly Rods, now he works at Fishpond, uh, he said you stick just a couple of trout doing it right, not like getting lucky with the European-style rig where you're right. surprised by the fish, but like where you actually come tight on a couple of fish where there's no slack in your line. And he's like, you'll get hooked pretty fast, and I'm, I'm hooked. You're yeah. hooked now. Yeah. It, it seems like there's a couple new techniques that we're starting to see guys play around with a lot more out here. One of them, obviously, is the European-style nymphing. The other one, I mean, this trout micro-spay deal and guys out swinging flies for trout on traditional trout rivers where they're not fishing for salmon or steelhead at all, that's gotten very popular out here and oh, yeah. I mean the other day two weekends ago beautiful day river was in great shape driving down the canyon I probably saw five boats on the river every one of them were pulled over two guys out of the boat three guys out of the boat and spaced out and fishing trout microspace on the Yakima yeah I, and, think it's such yeah, a... I mean it is it is a great way to fish I love it and and I've been doing a ton of it. I'm surprised that none of our guides did it yesterday. I had my trout spay rod rigged up, but once we really did the numbers and, and figured out how much fishing time we'd get, we decided to go and bobber fish. Yeah, What uh, you're throwing, a, if I remember right, a little heavier trout spay rod. No, no, you're... I'm throwing the two weight yeah, little okay. one, sage one, the sage little one two weight. And, I mean, having a blast with that thing. And I mean, I bet I've had ten clients cast that rod, and probably nine of them have bought Sage Little Ones after, afterwards. The other one, I think, bought a Winston. Yeah, the Winston guy. guy. That's the 2109, the ten foot, nine inch, two weight. Yeah, Yeah, great, great rod. And it's amazing what you can do with that thing. What line are you throwing on that? The commando head. So the 13-foot commando head with a, I mean, I'm throwing 10 feet of T8 on it then. Mm -hmm. And an unweighted fly is what I typically fish. A very thin-profiled, unweighted little seal bugger is what it is, basically. It's that, you know, the little hail bop leech works good. And it's it just is a lot of fun to fish that thing. It's a lot of fun to catch fish on it. It it is, yeah. And that lightweight fly is really fun to fish, too. You know, when most people think about streamer fishing, they're thinking you know great big conehead buggers chuck and duck style fishing it it is so peaceful to throw an unweighted fly and feel it slither over the boulders like you can actually make contact with the boulders with your sink tip yep but that seal bugger uh that little unweighted hillbop slithers over those rocks and it is so much fun to present that either on big water where you're casting further or just executing short casts with that commando and sliding it over the rocks in rock piles. Yeah, for sure. It's amazing. I mean, I was very skeptical, you know. It, I've enjoyed skagit casting. I like it. I was, when these commando heads came out and the head length was getting shorter and shorter and shorter, I was very skeptical. And I thought there's no way in the world that you can throw a 13 foot head and you know have it cast and load the rod and be enjoyable and pleasant and i mean i'm blown away by it you can turn over heavy flies if you want with heavy tips and it's amazing what it does when well, you can make a short cast i mean yeah. it's the, one of the most unpleasant things about spay casting is trying to take a 25 or 30 foot head and make a 20 foot or 25 foot cast you know where you've got your head your sink tip leader that's not very much fun i want to be able to make a you know, 25-foot cast and have the whole head out. Yep. and uh, and Not just that, but the other thing with those short heads is, you know, switch casting. A switch cast is not an easy cast for a beginner to make. You have to get your angles just right on it to do that and, you know, keep it from either wrapping the fly around the tip of the rod or putting it in the back of your head. And with those short lines, I mean, you know, the nice thing about a switch cast is It's just so quick. You're so efficient. From the time you finish one drift and you're starting another one, it is just, it's so quick. I mean, a snap tee following up with another off-shoulder cast takes a lot of time. At the end of the day, I bet your fly might be in the water. If you switch casting instead of having to do a snap tee with follow-up cast on the end of it, whatever, you're tack-handed or off your strong shoulder, I mean, the amount of time that your fly is in the water fishing at the end of a day is probably 25 to 30% more time in the water. Oh, yeah. And uh, and just for folks that don't understand what a switch cast is, basically you're just talking about no no anchor step. Yes, so exactly. So you're taking it right from hang down and punching it back out at, you know, 45, 50-degree angle or whatever your skill set allows you to do. Um, how much direction change can you do with that, Steve? It, I mean, you can get, you know, close to close to 90 degrees i would say if you've got a 13 foot head on the end of your line mm-hmm. i mean you can get close to 90 degrees direction change on that thing you can go from down river angle to straight across from you with with just a pickup and a fire it yeah and that's really fun when you're just fishing the head or prowling tougher spots too where, exactly. where you're not you don't need to shoot this misconception that you have to cast 80 feet to be a good spay fisherman is just untrue it's You know, if we took a single-handed rod and you and I walked out and I said, yeah, Steve, just cast your single-handed rod as far as you possibly can and hope you catch a fish, that'd be one of the most ludicrous propositions ever. Not only is it ludicrous to cast it, but the amount of effort that it takes to strip all that line in and work it back out again, that's the ludicrous part of it, is the amount of time you waste after you finish a drift, and now you need to pick it back up and, and start another one. Yeah, I mean, I can testify might when, you know, I would say I'm a more advanced spay fisherman, Donald, but when I was a beginner to intermediate spay fisherman and just getting a taste for what it was like to be able to, to cast to the other side of the river, I, I would just throw ridiculous amounts of line. Half the time it'd wind up in a big ball out there, but if it shot out, it felt good. And, and I started to think about it one day. I'm like, you know, if I, if I told somebody to take their single hand rod and just cast as far as they possibly could, that would be ludicrous advice because they know that it doesn't fish good because we're so familiar with the single-handed presentation yet as we as we venture into the, the, the spay game, so much of us kind of get into that mindset that you know we gotta cast a long ways to take full advantage of the gear and what you're saying is you're utilizing your two-handed rod for what it was born to do and that was provide great efficiency and more casts and better presentation. Yeah, and make it easier on the angler. I mean, flat-out just angling efficiency, period. I mean, there's no doubt about it. I mean, you finish a drift with your single-handed rod, and, you know, if you just threw 60 feet of line, you finish a drift at the bottom end, you've now got to strip, you know, 30 feet of line back in, and then you've probably got to take how many false casts? Three or four false casts to get it worked back out again and kind of adjust angles, and hopefully a gust of wind doesn't come up to tangle your line up or any of that. Never mind the fact that this time of year, it's cold, and your hands, when you're having to strip all that line and work those loops back through your hands, your fingers are now freezing. Oh, yeah. And, I mean, it's a it's a man-eater. To have to do that, it is a man-eater. Mm-hmm. Spay fishing originally, the two-handed broad game, was designed so that you didn't need that big back cast. You know, you've got overhang brush or whatever behind you, so you don't need clearance on your back cast. But also, you don't need to wade out to your armpits so that you can you know get your fly across the current seam or create that room to get the back cast so in 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 practicality, I mean you're out there ankle or knee deep you're standing comfortably on good footing I mean at the end of it just to, to finish one drift and start a new one, it's a minimal amount of effort required and good clean presentation yeah i agree it's it's uh and I think. Two things, you know, we touched just real lightly on euro nymphing, and I plan as I build a little bit more skill to do an entire podcast just about my journey and what it's been like trying to learn something new like that. But I think those two things are so healthy for the sport, you know, to see boats, you know, because Steve and I we we drive down to Red's Fly Shop. We drive roughly ten miles of canyon, let's say. I drive a little bit more. Steve lives a little yeah, closer. right in but... the prime part of the river. I mean, we see guys fishing every day yeah whether we're guiding or not i mean we're on the river every day um and to see like how these trends kind of ebb and flow i just think it's so exciting for for folks to fall in love again with the with the journey of of angling and not the journey of catching because a lot of those boats that are we're seeing pulled over or fishermen we're seeing gear up with this type of gear they're fascinated and enamored by the how the cast really defies physics it's amazing when it takes flight. They like the efficiency. They like hitting the sweet spot of the rod and getting that cast and also the adventure trying something new. And it's not to the detriment of our fishery. Um, they're not just trying to simply catch as many trout as they can every time out, but they're partaking in a fresh adventure. And I love seeing people get back out, get out of the boat, and get on foot too. I think that there's so much value in that of being in the water, and this might sound corny or sappy, but... You have a more intimate experience with the river when you get to feel the current on your legs and you're standing in the water and you get you get you maybe get cold feet from time to time. I think people's angling experience uh is definitely heightened when they spend some time out of the boat standing in you know standing in nature like that as well so I or think, or and even breaking a river like this down I mean a lot of times if people are coming out to float a river for the day they're looking at that river from, you know, point A to point B, whatever section they're gonna float. They're looking at eight miles of it. When you're wade fishing, you narrow your focus down and now you're you're approaching it in terms of individual rocks or Correct. or wow, foam yeah. bubble lines or any of that. And I mean it's just a whole different mindset and frankly, you know, I think it's a very healthy perspective for an angler to, to actually reduce their their focus down to that level. Where now you're looking, you're you're looking at this river in a much more detailed capacity than what you were when you were coming out to do a day of floating. Oh man, that's really well said. To actually feel the rocks under your feet and appreciate, you know, um, you know, co- you know, things like cobble size, you know, things that guides or you know highly experienced anglers can look at, but. You know, if you go to a new river and you actually get to stand in that gravel or stand on those boulders and actually understand how that river is working over those rocks and things, I think it's critical to learning a river um, and getting to know it. Um, But what you said about focusing down a little bit, you know, we're going to try to offer, uh, I guess in the kind of the last segment of this podcast, just try to offer just some practical advice we've learned over the years of, you know, fishing and mentoring anglers. And I would say the the biggest mistake I I see, and I, I tell people this when they come in for advice in the shop, is they get really comfortable in spring and summer and things doing long floats, cover lots of water, kind of a run-and-gun type offense, and they float in their boat. And we deal with a lot of floaters, uh, but this can be also be true in wading as well. But when the water begins to get cold we definitely want to reduce our focus to very short sections of river shorter floats and really isolate those spots like Steve is describing those bigger deeper pools and fish less water and spend more time trying to figure out exactly where within that spot those fish are holding. I'm sure that you've experienced this as well but when you pick apart a larger seam line or a larger hole or chunk of water during these fringe seasons I tend to find that the vast majority of those fish are holding in a particular quarter or third of that spot, without a doubt. Yeah, there's a honey part of the hole, and it definitely changes from, you know, midsummer, bigger flows. That honey part of that run changes from midsummer, high flows to wintertime, low, low flows out here, but yet, you know, those fish will move into deeper water than they are in the, in the summer months. They don't need all that oxygen when the water gets cold like that. They don't want to burn calories. Their metabolism slows down. They want to conserve energy. They are holding in areas where they don't have to burn a lot of calories. Yeah, maybe this sounds crazy, but I I think that some of those bigger pools, you know, where, uh, you know, if you were to diagram a river bottom, you, you know, you've got your run, let's say, which is numbers don't mean anything. Say it's two to four feet deep. You get two to four feet of water just kind of spilling into this pool and then it fades down to six to ten feet deep or whatever the numbers are but where that pool forms I I think there's got to be some interflow or some springs that come in in those deeper spots because um, it's really bizarre sometimes you get into those pools and you spend two hours trying to figure out where or an hour or whatever it is try to figure out where the fish are holding and then once you find where the, those fish are holding it seems like almost every fish in there can be in those, that particular spot at that time and I've got to think that there's other current flow coming in out of the ground in certain areas of those bigger pools. Yeah definitely and, and who knows I mean it'd be interesting to scuba dive some of that stuff but You know feeding fish i think when fish are on the feed they're going to move into some zones where you know you catch more fish in that particular spot because they come into those spots when they're ready to feed true they may go rest somewhere else but but when they're on the bite they're moving into to those areas then yeah i think there's a combination of inner interflow that takes place because they need that thermal refuge during the winter yeah um the shallower water is going to be your typically your coldest water, where it's it's reactive to the surface temperature. And man, just in the time Steve and I started this podcast, we pulled up some chairs along the river, and it felt like Hawaii. We're sitting in the direct, direct sunlight on the beachfront, and now the shade line's a good twenty feet behind us. I feel like we've been transported to the dark side of the moon. Uh, it's got chilly out here. It got chilly down out here. It it The the shallow water in the colder months is generally going to be the coldest water. It's going to react to the air temperature. The air temperature here right now is in the mid-thirties. It was in the mid-forties, and then (laughs) the the shade line moved over us. But the shallow water pouring into the pool is often going to be your coldest water, and then those deeper pools are going to offer some type of thermal refuge, or at least provide consistent water temperatures for those fish, so when you fish those you know, when you're looking for holding areas in uh, the French months, definitely look for some place of thermal refuge. They're not necessarily going to be just in the deepest water, but they're definitely going to have an escape route to the deepest water. If, if bad weather hits or there's an exceptionally cold night, they need to be able to back into those pits or tanks. Yep, absolutely. I mean, and the thing is, if you're going to come out and do some winter fishing, it, you just want to be efficient with your day. I mean, number one, it seems like our winter season out here, the bite is good from about 11 a.m. to 3 p.m. That's the prime time to be out here. You don't need to plan to be on the water at 8 a.m. It, that is just not the most productive time to go fishing in the months of, you know, late November, December, January, and February. 11 a.m., 3 p.m plan to fish from your car I mean come out here go hit this spot for an hour as soon as your feet get cold jump back in your car and and turn on the heater and drive to another spot and get back out and hit that for another hour and and you know do that three or four times in the course of the day and and it shift really get to know those those particular spots and I'll guarantee you the next time you come back out wherever you happen to catch fish on that day you're going to catch them again the next time there's a good chance they're going to be there that is some of the best advice that anybody listening to this could ever get is essentially you're saying like the first trips it's a fishing trip but it's kind of a scouting trip exactly yep yeah yep that's a good idea. And then uh, we guide all winter, um, you know, the wade fishing in the winter time out here can be great because the water, at least for us, and I would say almost all other Western rivers, if they're not dam controlled and running high for some reason, most rivers are going to run low during the winter months um, because it's freezing in the mountains, water's flow is slowed down, precipitation's falling in the form of snow rather than rain. So actually good wading conditions on most Western rivers uh, during the wintertime. As long as we don't have ice flows. Yeah, as long as it doesn't get too cold. But, uh, yeah, speaking of which, I didn't prepare for this. I'm getting a little chilly right now. What do you say we wrap this thing up and we'll get back to work in the fly shop, Steve? Uh, I think that's a good idea. All right, you guys. Well, thanks for listening to the MEN podcast. Uh, make sure to like us on Facebook, Instagram. Check out our website at RedsFlyShop.com. Just know that we have a big online store, and our team of pros ships fast. Free and we would love to help hook you up with some new gear or just give us some help with advice. Thanks yep, for listening. You're, you're coming out here in the winter to find a spot to go fishing. Swing on into the shop and we'll be happy to draw you a map and, and point you in the right direction. All right, thanks.